0: The Dance of Gods, Book 1, Spell of Catastrophe, by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter 9. What I Didn't Know. Even after they dumped me in the local jail, I was still thinking it over. The way the guard had arrested me had been slick as a textbook. I couldn't see anyone bothering to learn my habits well enough to trap me that neatly, with me not even able to draw my sword, much less fight or run, so it might have been purely good luck for them or bad luck for me. Either way, it didn't seem like I'd gotten any benefit from the metabolic association with Gashana Tantra, my erstwhile client. Any luck he had sure hadn't rubbed off. Luck or no luck, though, I couldn't make the operation add up. The way I read it, that squad had been ready for me. They knew I was someone they were after, they'd recognized me immediately, and they'd acted in perfect coordination without pausing to think. Reviewing my activities for the last few weeks, I couldn't think of anything I'd done that would make me that important to target. In fact, their recognition of me was just a little too perfect. I don't have a particularly distinctive face, but they hadn't even checked me against a description. They just jumped. That left a couple of possibilities. I ruled out mistaken identity. With all the crazy stuff I had been mixed up in lately, it didn't surprise me at all that something this unusual had happened. Of course, being picked up by the guard because I'd been confused with somebody else would have been the most ridiculous thing of all. I didn't think I had to reach that far. No, I had the feeling I'd been pegged. A person out there in the city wanted me out of circulation and had managed it very nicely. One side of martial law is a tendency to arrest everyone handy and sort things out later. With all the confusion in the city and the number of people being grabbed, I could disappear into the shuffle for a week or two, and no one would think twice about it, or come looking for me either. With Gash and his damned metabolic linkage hanging over me, though, on ice was exactly where I couldn't afford to be. I didn't have to think too hard to find a prime candidate for wanting me out of the way. The barrier-maker was the obvious one. Oh, sure, some person who had their own grudge against me could have chosen this time to get even— but I thought I'd already piled up enough coincidences for one morning. It was improbable enough to think that the barrier maker already knew I was looking for him. I had had no reason to think he knew who I was, except for the clear fact that there I was, sitting in jail, and I hadn't found him yet. Unless I had, and hadn't realized it. I did have a candidate. After all, the list of people I'd talked to since this new mess had started was real short. My new pal Gash and Carl Lake. In fact, you could say Carl had led me right into that guard troop. He could have left his house, assuming I'd follow him, and sent his manservant off to arrange things with the guard. He didn't necessarily even have to arrange anything. For all I knew, he could have just plain taken control of the soldiers' minds and led them through it directly. Following a magician can be tricky, which I knew, of course, but like a sap, I'd let myself ignore it. When a magician's around, you never know what things just happen by themselves, and what they've caused deliberately. The final misstep that had put my hand out of reach of my sword... Was that chance, or did magic make my foot slip? The perfect coordination of the guardsmen, was it practice and drill and luck, or was somebody else running them? That's why I hate magic. Things are usually complicated enough without having to worry about whether a given thing was random or not, or whether a hidden puppet master was calling the shots in a way I'd never detect, or whether a piece of evidence was real or had materialized out of a puff of colored smoke. Carl had acted a little strangely during our talk, too. He'd taken things a little too calmly, like maybe the barrier wasn't really news to him after all. And then at the end, when I was leaving, he jumped when I'd asked about anyone new to town, when he didn't think I could see him. I'd seen enough, though, to make me think that if he didn't put up the barrier himself, he had a pretty good idea who did. I had to assume that since Carl didn't tell me about it, he didn't want me to know. If he didn't want me to know what was going on, or to mess with it, the next step was to ensure that I didn't find out what was happening on my own. We'd been friendly enough in the past, but of course, cordiality didn't necessarily mean anything when you got down to serious business. Still, if he was up to something tricky now and knew I was after him, he might have chosen to merely stash me out of the way rather than do me in. Putting me where he could get to me later might even have advantages for him. In case whatever he was doing was out and out dangerous, it wouldn't have been stretching the point too much to imagine him giving himself an insurance policy, If things got desperate enough, he could spring me and get me to help him. For that matter, he'd always seemed to think I was pretty competent. If he'd really arranged to get me in the clink, he might think I wouldn't let myself stay there long, and that when I got out, the first place I'd come asking questions was wherever he was. If he was in trouble, I'd be there to help him out of it. That idea was nice for my ego in a backhanded sort of way, Looking around the tidy little Hooskow, though, I had the unpleasant feeling that that concept might just overestimate my abilities by a little too much. When I said the jail was small, I wasn't exaggerating. The main cell was about the size of my office, and if you added the room where the guy with the keys sat, you could tack on the landing at the top of my staircase, space for a chair and a front door and not much else. I thought it was pretty poor planning myself. If you're going to hold a coup, you'd better arrange enough accommodations for the Loyalists you're planning to pull off the streets. They were probably using the lockups in the city itself as holding areas, shipping the prisoners off to the real dungeons underneath the island palace whenever they got around to it. Even if the full-scale dungeons were worse, I thought it might be just as well to make the move. The place I was in was small, but it was also pretty crowded. The cell was basically a cage of thick iron bars built into the side of the building. The bars ran horizontally as well as up and down, and were attached to each other where they crossed by heavy, messy welds. Whoever had built it hadn't wanted anyone getting out, ever. The cage had a ceiling of the same cross-hatched bars and a floor to match. I still had the small knife in my boot, but I sure wasn't going to saw my way out with that. Forget the lock, too. It wasn't big, and it wasn't heavy, but its outlines had the kind of vague fuzz the charged-up magic gives. Another flagrant example of overkill, but maybe it had its point. The only key that would open that lock was the one that had been in the hole when the spell was cast. It couldn't be picked. I had the chance to examine the details of the cell's construction so closely for a simple reason. When they threw me in, I couldn't go very far. In fact, they had to lean on the door to close it, like trying to get the lid down on a trunk you just packed for a three-year vacation. The cell wasn't filled, it was stuffed. There must have been forty people jammed in there already. I'd never tried to get forty people into my office, but I think the back wall would have come off before I got past thirty. The troopers shoved me in backward, and the first thing I heard were the growls and oofs from my nearest new neighbors as my momentum elbowed them aside. My own mother could have been in that cell, somewhere in the back, and I never would have known it. After I got finished studying the bars in front of my nose and gradually squirmed my vantage point around, though, I was somehow not surprised to recognize the second face at my back. "'Gag,' I said. "'You don't look so hot. You need some air?' The face of Gag the Hairless was almost beatific in its look of peace. It was the face of a man who had just had his fondest dreams come true— and to whom such details as this jail were now so much insignificant confetti. He slowly noticed me, his expression lost in dreams. "'Nah,' he said blissfully. Even his mustache had gone limp with tranquility. "'Hey, gag, talk to me. What were you smoking?' With the noise in the cell, I could only hear him because his mouth was almost embedded in my ear. "'The payroll,' he said. "'The payroll for the Black Legion!' I said, you were smoking a payroll? Not because I thought his answer was in direct response to my question, but because I thought it might get him irritated enough to bounce back down to the human plane for a few lines. To my surprise, it worked. His eyebrows furrowed and his eyes focused. Eh? he said. What? The payroll for the Black Legion? His mouth resumed its county-wide smile and his eyebrows relaxed. You wouldn't have believed it. The most amazing thing you'd ever see in your life. Like heaven, that's what it was like. The Black Legion, you know? Wanted a bunch of mercenaries this car guy brought in. I wanted their loot up front. Two months worth of down payment. Retainer, yeah, that's what they got. A whole safe full of nothing but gold. Gag giggled. You told me I better not push my luck. I never had so much luck in my whole life. "'Everybody wants a hideout, right? "'I had one. "'This great little inn place, up an alley, out of the way, "'where nobody would even think of looking for an inn. "'It was perfect. "'I'd go back after a job, hole up, relax. "'Perfect.' "'His smile widened, a feat I hadn't thought was possible. "'I wasn't the only one who loved the place. "'The Black Legion stumbled over it, too, "'decided it was the perfect spot for their own hideout. "'The place to sit on their loot.' "'Gag chuckled. "'Sure.' They threw me out when they were securing the top floor, but at the same time they were rolling me down the stairs, they were dragging his safe up. You got the whole safe? You should have been there. Everybody should have been there. It was great. Their storeroom was in the back, so I just hung off down the roof, sawed through the wall, and blew out the back of the safe. Just between you and me, it wasn't that much of a safe, he said, lowering his voice even more. If an outfit like that isn't smart enough to protect its own payroll, they deserve what they get, I said. Exactly like what I said, too. Of course, I'm here, so I guess somebody was doing some protecting. But did they get their gold back? Nah. Why do you think I'm here and not floating around in some sewer? You got a point there, I said. You're also lucky the guard found you instead of the Black Legion. How'd you know that? If you stole this Legion's whole two-month stash and they had you, but they didn't have it, I think they'd spend as long as it took to convince you to give it back. These mercenaries have a lot of ways to convince people to do things like that. Most of them are hard and blunt or cold and sharp. For the first time, Gag glanced around, suddenly back to Earth and looking nervous. Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, you think the guard heard the Black Legion was after me and since they spotted me first, they picked me up? But maybe the guard didn't know what I did. If they knew, maybe I wouldn't be in here, eh? Maybe they'd go after the Legion's gold, too. "'I think you've hit it right on the head,' I said. "'And here you are, sitting around, "'just waiting for somebody to remember you "'and figure out what you've done. "'Who knows, maybe the Black Legion "'will decide to check out the jails themselves. "'They could walk in that front door there any 2nd "'Don't say that,' Gag said with a note of resignation. "'You're a right guy. Don't do this to me. "'I gotta get out of here. I know I gotta get out of here. "'Only I can't. I ain't got none of my stuff. "'I can't blow out of here without my stuff.' "'Well, there went that hope. "'Think about it for a while. "'You're a smart guy, Gag. "'Maybe you'll come up with something.' "'Well, okay. "'He didn't sound too convinced, "'which meant he was being realistic. "'Realistic or not, we had to think of something. "'If nothing else, we'd suffocate if we stayed in that place. "'I scanned the crowd, but Gag was the only person I recognized. "'I turned and studied the lock again.' There was something about it that puzzled me, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. It was a normal round lock, about six inches across, and painted black. Its outlines were slightly indistinct and slowly swimming... Wait a minute. I'd never seen fuzzy edges before on anything but a cat, or after anything but a binge. My eyes were still good, so I figured it couldn't be their fault. The guard hadn't whacked me over the head, so I didn't have a fresh concussion now that I thought about it, I remembered that I'd only heard that some sorcerers were able to pick out magic-loaded items by that woolly radiation. Some of them had described the manifestation as a bit of haze around whatever it was. I'd only heard about it. I'd never been able to do it. Like I said, I'm not a magic user. But then there that lock was, sure enough, fuzzing away like a mad. Maybe, I thought with a sudden surge of hope, I was getting a little inadvertent help from Gash and his metabolism thing after all. I stared at the lock. Well, what did I do now? The way popular tale-tellers like to describe it, when you worked magic you reached out with your mind and then something impressive happened. Magic was work, hard work, and the hardest parts were in the theory. Another reason I didn't like magic was that I could never handle the math. On the other hand, what did I have to lose? Maybe gods didn't have to do things the same way regular sorcerers did. So I tried reaching out with my mind. Have you ever tried reaching out with your mind? Right. All I had to do was actually think about how to do that, and I realized I didn't have the slightest idea what it meant. I scowled at the lock. I want you open, I thought. The lock sat there, ignoring me. I tried to fight down my growing frustration. I'd heard at another time that frustration was the quickest way to magical paralysis. Even if you felt you couldn't do something, you would better not pay too much attention to the feeling or it would dominate you, and the feedback would make sure that you really couldn't do it. I can do it, I told myself. Really, I can. Lock still sat there. I decided to try another approach. I concentrated on the lock. I visualized the lock. I visualized the lock open. I tried to fill my mind with lock, lock, nothing but lock, nothing but open lock. I wrapped my hand around the lock, willing power to flow across, and blast it open. I even thought about tasting a lock. The obstinate, nasty, son-of-a-crocodile lock didn't even twitch. Against all my attempts at control, I was getting frustrated after all, but what I really was getting was mad. I hit the lock with the side of my hand. All thoughts of the lock vanished. Yow! I said, clutched my hand, wondering if I was dumb enough to have broken it. Suddenly, the door to the jailhouse opened. A guard lieutenant and half a dozen very large troopers crowded into the room with the jailer, their swords drawn. I could see a whole bunch of other soldiers behind them in the street, and through the window, more of them were spreading out around the building. All right, you men, the lieutenant called out. you are getting out of this rat hole. Nobody answered him. We all knew that wasn't the bottom line. I closed my eyes and thought, Open! I heard a rattle of chains and more stamping and opened one eye wide enough to peek. Another half-dozen soldiers were dragging in a long length of heavy chains studded with manacles. If that lobby had already seemed packed, it clearly had seen nothing yet. The lieutenant shouted, "'Time to move out to the palace!' But when I'd seen that chain, I'd already figured it out. I was annoyed and frustrated and mad, and the pain from my hand was like the time a ruby-eyed marmivore tried to chew off my finger— And the last thing I wanted to add to my mood was the pleasure of being shackled in irons and dumped in a dungeon. And so I screwed my eyes shut and thought, Open! as hard as I could, trying to push all of the anger and pent-up frustration into it, sweeping everything else out of my mind until it was only open. My entire world was open. I felt myself hitting my hand once again against the lock for good measure. All the muscles and veins were standing out on my forehead. And then all at once my head spun and I lost my balance and I fell hard against the bars. That's all I need, I thought fuzzily. I gave myself a stroke. But something, I didn't know quite what, something had happened. My nose was mashed up next to the lock. I squinted at the lock. It was still closed, locked tight. I snarled at it. "Gods damn, I said. The floor rumbled. I opened my eyes wide and looked around. Everyone else, guard included, was doing the same thing. The floorboards creaked and rippled, and one of the troopers lost his balance and pitched over, taking his neighbor with him. Another man fell backward through the door. "'Earthquake!' somebody shouted, and then the rumbling stopped. The quiet in the jail was striking. The guardsmen picked themselves up, gazing nervously at the floor. Most everyone in the place was nervously aware of the floor. "'Right!' said the lieutenant. "'Now I want you all to—' And then the rumbling was back boards groaned, metal screeched, guardsmen fell down, and the cage that was the cell lurched backward and dropped a foot. Beneath the cage, the wood floor rippled and puckered down, then tore open and began to rip back towards its edges. The bars at the bottom of the cell, in the middle where the weight on them from the standing people was heaviest, slowly started to bend downward into the widening hole underneath. Even over the rumble and the creaking and the squeaking, I could hear the snap and clang as the welds holding the bars together started to go. All at once, a man in the center of the cell dropped with a wail out of sight, like he'd fallen straight through a trap door, which, in a close way, was exactly what had happened. The cell lurched again and tilted further. People were sliding and dropping in numbers now as the bars peeled away in earnest. A few men had managed to jump up in the air, and had grabbed hold of the bars enclosing the ceiling, and their dangling forms were increasingly visible as the rest of the crowd lessened. I had one hand wrapped around Gag's collar, and the other arm looped through a bar in the door. When the avalanche is over, we go, I yelled at him. At that hole, Gag said, it's deep. We fall and we keep going forever. It's not that deep, I said. Listen to the screams. They don't gradually fade away like they're falling out of range. They just go on a little and stop. You can even hear guys moving around down there. Gag listened. On the other side of the door, the lieutenant was fumbling with the key, trying to fit it into the lock. The other troopers and the jailers were staring blankly at the scene. Boards that had fallen from the ceiling were scattered on the floor, and the floor itself was covered with small, dark holes and splintered floorboards that waved their jagged edges in the air. I reached through the bars, grabbed the front of the lieutenant's tunic, and yanked him sharply toward me. His head swung forward and hit two bars, one on either cheek. He started to slide to the floor, and the key dropped out of his hand, bounced once on the floor and once in the cell, and then spun with a single reflected flash over the edge into the pit and disappeared. "'Nice move,' Gag said approvingly. "'Thanks,' I said, rolling my eyes at another striking example of my luck. "'But now we've got no choice. Time to go.' The cell had tilted back at an angle, resting partly on the wooden back wall of the jail building, The wall had bowed outward and was creaking ominously. The handful of remaining prisoners were clinging desperately to the bars as far away from the center of the cell as they could get. One man, who had been still hanging from the roof of the cell, looked down, sighted carefully, swung once, and dropped into the hole. A second later we heard a low thud and an oof over the shouts and clatter. Gag and I edged gingerly out toward the hole and peeked over the edge. The meshwork of iron bars that remained of the cell floor actually extended out over the rim of a pit before the bars came apart from each other and began to curve down. The entire center section had torn completely off, but certain other parts of dangling mesh were still attached to the rest of the floor structure. Right below us, two twisted bars reached down five feet below the level of the floor. Enough crossbars were still attached to these to make a kind of crude ladder leading into the gloom of the pit. Below the bottommost rung, perhaps ten or fifteen feet further down, we could see a flat floor. This level was now covered with mounds of dirt and rock and former prisoners. A room, Gag said. That's a room down there. Somebody's basement looks like, I said. The wood frames and braces that had supported the room's ceiling still stuck up to the rubble. It was certainly a convenient time for a cave-in, though, if that was really what it was. Something went zift. Through my hair, and clanged off a bar across from me. An arrow! It was less than half a minute since the first rumble, but the guard was sorting itself out. I pushed off, slid down the curve of the twisted ladder, grabbed the bottom rung with both hands as I passed it, paused, swung back and forth, identified an open spot, and let go. The prisoners in the basement were sorting themselves out, too, with many of them already on their feet, "'and the rest either still unconscious "'or deciding whether their limbs were actually broken "'or just battered and strained. "'Gag arrived next to me, looked around, and said, "'Where's the exit?' "'Behind this,' a brawny man said from one side. "'He was straining at a section of slate "'covered two-thirds of the way up by a rock slide, "'snap timbers protruding from the sides of the pile. "'Another two men were using lengths of broken cell bar "'to sweep dirt and rocks off the slate. "'With a crack!' Another timber splintered, and the rock settled further. "'Forget that,' Gag told me with a professional air. A loud clanging came from above as someone set to work on the cage. Gag cocked his head, listened, and then said, "'The guard's going to get through those bars inside of ten minutes.' I had spent a moment orienting myself, and I thought what I had in mind might work. I turned Gag around and led him back, stepping over a groaning form. "'The street runs back here,' I said. So, Gag said, so I spotted a manhole cover down the block when they dragged me in. There's a sewer under that street. I could scarcely see Gag at all in the darkness, but I caught a glint from his teeth as he grinned. He was running his hands over the surface of the wall, and I joined him. Then, down at the bottom, I felt rock. Over here, I yelled, another way. Men immediately surrounded me, dragging away a stack of crates that blocked part of the wall, kneeling to scrape away at the base, pushing and yanking at the stones. With a low grinding shudder one of the big stones moved. "Here," someone said, "push!" We scrambled for a hole, drew our breath, and leaned. The stone rumbled and moved into the wall, one inch, two, and caught up. Behind us, with a clang and a new crash, more of the cage and a shower of rocks and floor fell into the basement. "'Now,' the man said again, and we all strained against the stone. It caught, jerked, caught again, abruptly rattled away from us with a dull bass groan, and then suddenly there was no resistance at all. The stone slid out of touch, we fell against the wall with all our force suddenly released, and a great crash and plop and splash sent a shower of water up through the hole and into our faces. Below us now is the gurgle of running water.' One man squirmed head-first through the hole and slid free with another splash. A second man followed, and all of a sudden a pile-up had formed. "'Let's do this orderly, or we'll never do it at all!' I shouted. The crowd eased up, and I took advantage of the small gap in front to swing my legs through the opening, grab a handhold on the rocks on either side, and lower myself carefully through. This sewer was square-shaped instead of the usual cylinder, and only about five feet across. The rock we'd pushed out had formed the upper part of one side of the wall, just below the surface of the water, and it now sat there on the bottom, breaking the sluggish current at a crazy angle. The first man through lay limply over the stone, unconscious from the bash he'd taken when he'd rashly plunged head first. I took a second to prop his head out of the water, and then headed off downstream. The only light came obliquely through the slats of the manholes and the collection tubes leading up to the streets and buildings. I didn't need light, though, to tell me I wanted out of there fast. Scuttling and paddling along while bent over like a hunchback through what was, frankly, pretty disgusting water, breathing putrid air was nowhere near my favorite part of the job. As a matter of fact, the lack of light was probably good. I didn't want to know exactly what kind of junk was floating along and brushing up against me. It was better to have the trash down here than up in the streets, I knew, but that observation paled a little when you weren't actually in the streets, appreciating their cleanliness. Sounds of flailing and splashing behind me were suddenly joined by shouts and crashes, and I figured that the guard had gotten wise and opened a manhole. An intersection appeared, I turned right into a larger tube, and the sounds behind me faded I hoped Gag had gotten clear, too, not to mention the rest of the poor slobs who'd been swept up in the dragnet, but I wasn't going to spend all my time worrying about them. I had other things on my mind. There was still Carl Lake and Gashana Tantra, and whether that little earthquake or cave-in had really had something to do with me and other matters like that. I jumped up to catch the ladder hanging from the next manhole i passed and climbed up through the shaft to the surface. Levering up the edge of the heavy wooden manhole cover, I peeked out. I didn't recognize the street, but at the moment that didn't matter. The important point was that the street was deserted. I pulled myself through and let the cover drop. The street was narrow and short and dull, not much more than a block-long alley, which made it perfect for the kind of entrance I was making. I turned left at the corner and then left again, and then I knew where I was, about ten blocks in from the waterfront, and a few blocks north of the south wall. The sun was casting the shadows of early afternoon. A lot could have happened while I was having my dealings with the guard, and I figured I'd better get back in touch with events pretty quick. On the other hand, my sojourn in the sewers had left me thoroughly unfit for any decent human contact. The street I'd entered had a horse trough a block or so down, but it was going to take more than a simple trough to deal with me. One idea was a fast jump in the nearby river. That would get me wet, but not necessarily clean. The sewers had to empty someplace. A public bath was another idea, and I was about to go looking for one when my mind unexpectedly lit on the third and best idea of all. I took off at a jog. People wrinkled their noses and tossed rotten things at me as I passed, and the lucky few who saw me coming had enough time to move out of nasal range. I didn't blame them a bit. I lost a small pack of dogs that had showed up out of nowhere, rounded one final corner, and pounded on a neat oval door next to the open front stall of a glassmaker. A window opened on the third floor, high above my head. Who is it? said a woman's voice. I stepped back and looked up. Hey, who are you? she said. Look under the scum, I said. I don't believe it. "'I'm having a little trouble with it myself,' I said. "'How about coming down and letting me in?' "'Are you crazy? Let you in? "'After what happened last time you were here, "'you think I'd ever open my door for you again?' "'Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. "'Flora, be reasonable. I was under a spell, you know that. "'I was more embarrassed than you were.' "'That's what they all say,' she said, sniffing at me. "'Maybe it's even true. I don't care.' "'Even if it is true, you shouldn't be in my neighborhood at a moment, let alone my house, looking like you look and smelling like you—' "'If you don't come down here, I'm going to start smearing myself on the walls. Then you try dealing with the neighbors.' "'If I let you in, what next?' "'What do you mean, what next? Are you planning to tell me later you are under another spell?' I considered telling her I was under another spell, only not the kind she was thinking of, but under the circumstances, I thought she might not take it the right way. You're safe from me, Flora. I promise I'm not going to pull anything. We'll see about that. Where's your sword? I've never seen you without a sword. The guard took it, I said. I'll tell you about it when I'm clean. I'm sure I'm not interested, she said haughtily. But all right, then. Suppose you're telling the truth for a change. What do I get out of this? "'The story's got more in it than just the sword. "'It'll tell you something useful.' "'Useful? Huh! "'What can you tell me that would be in use at all? "'Something that could keep you from getting dead. "'That sound good enough for you?' "'Her head withdrew, and the window slammed. "'A moment later, there was a stamping on the stairs inside, "'and the door opened a narrow crack behind the chain. "'I could dimly see Flora inside with her arms folded. "'Okay, the door's open, big guy detective. "'Now what do you want?' I was highly aware of how much I was dripping on her porch, and she was clearly about ready to kick the door shut again in my face. Carl Lake been around lately? I said quickly. Her foot, against the door, paused. Why? she said. You called it to a meeting, right? The chain rattled loose, and slowly the door swung more fully opened. How do you know about that? And what's it to you? Clean up first. She sniffed again, this time at closer range, gagged, and turned a light shade of green. If I want to stand close enough to hear what you're saying, I guess you'll have to get detoxified somehow. Go around the back. The front door closed, and I went around the side of the building to another pair of larger, cross-timbered doors, like the doors to a barn. One of them creaked as the bar inside was pushed back. With a louder creak, the door slid open just enough for me to ease through it and into Flora's workroom. The workroom was a two-story chamber with a loft, filled with several hulking barrels and tanks, two bookcases, a workbench, and a blackboard. Windows around the second floor let in the light. "'Stand on that grate,' Flora said, indicating a square mesh inset in the floor with open space underneath. As I walked over to it, she threw a lever and manipulated a crank on the wall. Belts attached to the crank stretched up to the ceiling and ran off into a complicated maze of pulleys and gears." A tube and spout attached to one of the tanks swung over until it was suspended over my head. She drew a figure in the air, a figure that trailed like blue smoke behind her finger, and then drifted across the room to spin slowly around my head. Through the slight haze of dancing blue motes, I saw Flora throw another lever. A valve squeaked up on the tank, liquid gurgled, and then a rush of water cascaded through the tube and out of the spout and down over me, Bits of blue from the hanging ring came off in the water and washed over my clothes in a glittering rain, spreading and scouring away the slime and refuse with remarkable efficiency. "'I'm sure I won't be flattered,' Flora said over the patter of the water. "'But why did you decide to come here?' I rinsed my mouth, gargled, and spit. "'You're a magician. Your specialty is water, and you were close. I needed to talk to another magician, I needed to get washed off, and I needed to do both of them pretty quickly.' That may not be flattering, but it's unfortunately the truth. She cranked the lever back, and the stream of water slowed to a trickle and stopped. That's the truth, she said. There wasn't anything in that little talk about friendship. These days I don't know who's a friend and who isn't, I said, brushing water out of my hair with both hands. Besides, if I'd said I was coming to see you because you were a friend, I sort of thought you might take it the wrong way, judging from the other part of our conversation outside. "'She threw back her head and laughed. "'What's funny?' I said. "'You!' she whooped. "'You've got a timid streak as wide as the Ulvan. "'I'd call it tact. "'Throw me a towel.' "'She found one and lobbed it at me, still laughing. "'Flora was in her fifties and in good conditioning. "'Magicians usually had to be because of the physical demands. "'She had put on a few pounds, though, "'which probably meant that business was slow.' Flora was on retainer to the veterans for maintenance of the flood abatement defenses, but the weather had been quiet lately, and I guess she didn't have too much else going on. Remember coupling? When a magician was active, running a lot of spell work, he or she had trouble keeping up their body weight. The power expenditures kept burning through their flesh. Between jobs, the thoughtful magician tried to put on some body mass in order to have an extra cushion to draw against when things picked up again. Flora wasn't really my type, not that I'd ever figured out exactly what that was, but events had thrown us together a few times before this, and we'd found that we could be pleasant with each other. It wasn't automatic, pleasantness never was, but it did happen on occasion, and so every so often we'd been friends. At the moment, though, it remained to be seen. All right, you're clean now, she said. Now it's your turn. I decided to stay where I was and drip over the drain for the time being. Under the circumstances, I thought it might be better not to take off my clothes and wring them out. I got a client this morning, I said. He was some magician I'd never seen before who'd been in the city on business and now was having a problem in getting out. According to him, the problem wasn't the guard. There was some kind of magical barrier around the city that hadn't been there when he'd arrived. He wanted me to find out who'd put it up and get them to take it down. You're not a magician. You hate magic, so why would you get involved in something like that? The guy was amazingly persuasive, I said sarcastically. I didn't like the idea of him turning me into a toad. I took the job and went to see Carl. When I asked him about the barrier, he tried to act surprised, but it sounded like it wasn't big news to him. What kind of barrier are you talking about? Magical quarantine, supposedly. Also to keep people from looking in across it magicians, I mean, not regular people. Couldn't have been Carl. Carl couldn't establish that kind of barrier. No one in Roosing could, except maybe for the new guy. New guy? What new guy? She had seated herself in a chair pulled out from the desk. I followed her lead and lowered myself to a more comfortable position on the floor next to the grate. I've only heard rumors, Flora said, Some new guy in a rented house somewhere near the north wall, supposedly very powerful. Hmm, I said. A big leaguer? Just in from out of town? Interesting. I didn't think Carl had built this barrier thing himself, either, but I thought he might have known he did. He had been acting like he knew more than he was telling. Carl usually does, but this was different. Anyway, he said he might call a magician's meeting and check things out himself. Maybe, I thought, and maybe not. I left his house, went around the block, and came back just in time to see Carl leaving. He was going north. I followed him and walked into a guard ambush. You? An ambush? Yeah, me. The situation was a little peculiar, but I was still sloppy. They threw me in a cell, I managed to get out, and I headed over here to see you. Flora's earlier nastiness had faded. So, she said thoughtfully, what do you think now? What I know and what I suspect are different. I've got a feeling that Carl's up to something that's not healthy. He has called a meeting, obviously, but I'm suspicious about what's really going to happen there. Maybe Carl's got some new friends, like maybe this new guy by the North Wall, and maybe he's telling Carl what to do, and maybe what he's telling Carl to do isn't real positive for the rest of us. I don't know if this has anything to do with the larger situation in Roosing Ovaya, but I wouldn't be too surprised if it did. So, why did I come to see you? I've got a lot of suspicions and real few facts. I do know enough about these things to know that by the time you have hard facts, it's usually too late. I thought you'd be interested in the suspicions, and I wanted to warn you about this meeting. You're right, it is interesting, Flora said, but I still want to know what's on Carl's mind. I can take care of myself. I'm going to that meeting, and I'd better leave soon, too. "'I wasn't suggesting you shouldn't go. "'I just wanted you to be as suspicious as me, "'and I wanted to know when and where it's going to take place.' "'All right, you warned me. "'The meeting is at Carl's place in about an hour, seven o'clock. "'Carl's boy said everybody of any magical consequence in town would be there.' "'She got to her feet. "'I'm not going to ask you what you're going to do now,' she said pointedly, "'staring sharply at me, "'because I don't want to know and you wouldn't tell me anyway.' I think we're even on this one, but you might think about being careful for a change. I stood up and brushed the last water off my pants. I knew I'd gotten one thing out of this visit, at least. I wouldn't have to throw out my clothes. You want me to ruin my reputation, do you? I said. Well, I'll do what I have to do, and you'll do what you have to do. Well, I'll do what we have to do. That's how the world's supposed to work, isn't it? Hopefully, we'd all be doing whatever it was we were doing for a long time yet to come, too. There wasn't much more to say, so Flora let me out the large barn door in the back, and I went off down the street. She hadn't had a spare sword sitting around either, so I was trying to figure out where I could come up with one in the time remaining before I had to be at Carl's, when I passed the opening to an alley. Nothing about the alley was distinctive, but for some reason I pulled to a halt a half-dozen paces beyond it, turned around, and went back to have a second look. The alley ran back from the street between two leaning buildings, its only apparent features a few piles of assorted trash. I eased carefully down it, whatever had drawn me back in the first place pulling me on further. All I saw was trash. Then I got to the end, saw how the alley turned there at an angle to proceed behind one of the leaning buildings, and spotted a figure with a human shape resting in the shadows against the wall. "'Hi there,' I said. i have been wondering when you'd show up again.' Kashana Tantra got to his feet, leaning on his walking stick, and brushed off the back of his tweed cape. "'You have not discovered information of use to me,' he said, rather ominously. "'You don't like what I'm doing? Then fire me and take your retainer back, too. I've found out plenty. I've been in and out of jail once today already on account of you. The guard confiscated a perfectly good sword, and if nobody's tried to beat me into the ground yet, it's probably because they were waiting in line for their turn to come up.' Your outrage at having your professional competency questioned is not of concern to me, Gash said dryly. Results are... I know, I said, I know. You told me as much before. Give me some more time. I've got a good lead. This Carl Lake person? Yeah, him, that's right. He may or may not be the one you're after, but either way he knows who is. If you really wanted to be helpful, you could go over and drag it out of him yourself. He chuckled. Front man, I believe the term is. That is you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Let's get serious. Tracking this barrier person down isn't going to be the problem. The problem's going to be what to do when I find them. Just what do you expect them to do? Capture them? Kill them? Have a nice talk with them and convince them to raise the barrier because I've got a client who doesn't like it? I don't know how much guidance I can give you, said musingly. You will be there, so you must use your own instincts great. My instincts tell me not to be there in the first place. But suppose I am, suppose I do what looks right to me, and then you decide that isn't what you wanted. it will be a lot harder to go back and try again. I want the barrier raised, Gash said. I want to know who established it, and why. I want to know if they were aware of my presence, and whether this is an attack directed at me, and if so, the perpetrator must die. That is all. The details are your business." "'Now you must go, or you will miss your appointment.' "'Thanks for the help,' I said, and turned to go. "'There is one more thing. "'I felt something strange happen just behind me, "'something that pulled at my back "'and gently tried to twist it in a couple of directions at once, "'like a silent baby tornado. "'I peeked cautiously over my shoulder. "'In Gash's hand, where the walking stick had been, A small sparkling whirlwind the length and shape of the stick had sprung up and was now fading. The form it was leaving behind was long and sharp, with the colors of pure minted metal and glistened with the sinuous lines of complicated etchings and mysterious runes. I believe you said you needed something like this, Gash said. It was a sword. My jaw was open to my chest, but I didn't care. I turned slowly around to face it. I didn't want to reach out for the thing. The sword was like every last one of the most beautiful things I'd ever imagined had suddenly been wrapped up all in a single material object—the gold at the end of dreams—and here I was being confronted with the thing, without warning, out of nowhere, concrete and solid and genuinely real. Jewels shone on the hilt and sparkled like lenses on the flat of the blade, flush with the metal. Hues and bright waves washed along the surface of what looked like steel, but couldn't possibly be. No steel was that perfect. Take it, Gash said. You were looking for one, and you're going to be late. Oh, I said, but somehow I managed to stick out my hand. Grasp it here, like this, said Gash, moving his hand back on the hilt and leaving room for my fingers. As my skin neared the sword, sparks leapt up between my palm and the hilt, A force took hold of my hand and inverted it, trying to contort it into a small, flat ball. I gritted my teeth and gave a short lunge, my fingers wrapped around the hilt, and with a last audible spark and sharp sting, the sword settled into my grip. "'From the matching of auras, my metabolism to yours. It will know you.' Gash released his hold. The sword was alive in my hand, trying to flip me over and bash me against the wall. I set my feet and concentrated on keeping my balance. Thanks, I said, for once meaning it. At the moment, the problem of what Gash was making me do and being thrown in jail and me probably finding some nasty way to get myself killed before the evening was out seemed not to matter. As I stood there, though, fighting that stunning sword, I realized that, dazzling though it was, I wouldn't be able to keep hold of it and even walk at the same time. Is there any convenient way of putting this thing away? I asked him. "'Remember this word,' Gash said, and spoke something in one of the tongue-twisting ancient languages. The sword seemed to writhe in my hand, waves of radiating power trying to mash my arm down to bone pulp, and then suddenly it was a walking stick again. The emanations were gone. I tried the word. Nothing happened. Gash pronounced it again, slowly, emphasizing each syllable.' I tried it again, and this time I was rewarded by a biting shock that numbed my arm halfway to the elbow. Don't insult it, Gash said. Monach is fairly intelligent for a sword. Sorry, I muttered, climbing back to my feet. I closed my eyes and concentrated, then said the word. My hand, holding the walking stick, vibrated and grew hot, and with a fiery sensation, as if the skin on my fingers was being peeled back to my wrist, The outline of the stick flowed like molten iron pouring into a sword-shaped mold, and the form of the sword was back. I quickly said the word again. The condensing sword paused, almost exasperated it seemed, heaved a metallic sigh, and again subsided into its traveling form. It is not necessary to fully vocalize the word, Gash told me. You can mouth it silently and Monarch will hear. Now go. "'Right,' I said. I turned away, and I made my way back to the street, leaving him there behind the building, and headed off toward Carl Lake's place. I would certainly be called to account for anything that happened to his sword, so I was treating the walking stick gingerly. Who knew how strong the thing was when it was in disguise? Still, with a sword like this one, I could get out of some pretty tight spots.' Of course, with a sword like this one, I'd have more of a tendency to get myself into those spots in the first place. Hopefully, if the situation came to it, I'd actually be able to keep my feet and swing Monach at the same time. I'd deal with that if I had to, but overall I figured my chances had gone up. Now, a decent bookie might only laugh for a quarter hour before taking a bet on me. I approached Carl's house from two streets behind, trying to make every sense I might have act alert. As I moved in, maybe I was starting to feel an odd sensation in my stomach, or maybe it was just that I hadn't eaten all day. The closer I got, though, the stronger the feeling grew, like my stomach was circling the outermost currents of a whirlpool. "'What are you up to, Carl?' I thought. The ends of the half-timbers stuck out from the wall of the building just behind Carl's and one to the side. I stuck the walking stick down the back of my tunic and climbed up the timbers three stories to the roof. The roof had gables and came to a shingled peak, unusual for roosing Alvaya, but I found a rain gutter and edged along it around to the back. Carl Lake's second-floor lodgings came into view, lamplight clearly shining through the translucent hides covering his street-front solarium shapes moved within. From my position I had the advantage of height, but I wanted better. I dropped gently onto the rear of Carl's roof, and moved closer in a slow crouch. The entrance I'd used in my visit that morning opened on the street of fresh breeze, and it was from this street that I now heard the approach of a small party of people, and then the rapping of a fist on the door. The shadow in the solarium moved again and vanished, I had taken cover behind a double-barreled chimney and withdrawn the small knife from my boot, and now I crawled quickly up to the solarium roof, slashed a small hole in the hide, at a spot screened by the shadow of a palm tree within the room, and stretched myself out flat. I applied my eye to the hole. The solarium proper occupied the floor below me, so I was looking down on it from a position above the heads of any standing occupants. The fronds of the palms spread out in front of my eyehole, but I could see around their edges into most of the corners of the room. The room, at the moment, was empty. I got the walking stick out of my shirt and arranged it next to me, with one hand on the handle just in case. A clumping of boots on stairs grew, and a small party filed into the solarium from the staircase at the far end. Carl Lake himself led the pack, followed by a half-dozen or so magicians. I knew Flora, of course, and I dealt with Runga and Italio Ignaci from time to time, but I recognized some of the others as well. They settled themselves around the furniture, and Carl's servant entered with a tray of tea and finger refreshments, small cakes and smoked fish on crackers. I could have used some of them myself. I told my stomach to shut up. We were on a case. There was another knock from the street. The servant descended the stairs and returned with another small group. They took their share of the tea and cakes, and then Carl got back to his feet and started to talk. You are wondering why this meeting? Yes, why have I asked you here? Surely nothing of much import could happen here in our small, peaceful city of Roosingovaya, hmm? Sadly, this is not the case. He clasped his hands behind his back and started to pace. There was something strange about that, but I couldn't immediately identify what it was. All of you are certainly aware of Carr and the, hmm, related political developments, and may have indeed speculated upon them. What may still be news is that the maneuverings of politics have been joined by similar activities in our own field. Perhaps the developments in our field were indeed the primary, and Carr himself merely a manifestation. Shall I be concrete, hmm? Have any one of you had need to leave the city in the past day? No? Then yes, you do not know. There is now a barrier around our city. A hum of conversation arose, then quickly quieted as Carl waited. My stomach had begun to lurch again, but now it didn't feel like I was hungry. That whirlpool sensation I'd gotten as I approached was back, and it was getting worse. This barrier, Carl continued, represents the application of extreme power. I have examined it myself. It is similar to one described by Iskandarian in his text on intruder protection. Some of you may be familiar with it. Certain other unusual emanations have appeared as well, clustered around the north city wall. It seems a new power has appeared in our midst. I blinked. A dark mist, so thin it was all but invisible, was creeping along the walls of the room below. When I looked at it, my stomach rang alarm bells. The haze was perfectly transparent, lending just a hint of black to whatever was behind it, but it wasn't my imagination. It was really there, and it was spreading out to surround everyone in the room. When confronted with a new order, what should we do, each of us? Could we resist, hmm? Perhaps flee? Or perhaps be passive, patient, yes, waiting to see, and with the potential of absorbing for ourselves whatever benefits may accrue? "'Or perhaps—' Carl glanced around. "'Perhaps we understand the implications "'and establish the only appropriate new allegiance. "'Now, no one was saying anything. "'In fact, Carl was the only person who was even moving. "'They were all covered, every last one of them, "'except Carl and his servant, by that sinister black mist. "'I tightened my grip on the walking stick. "'You have no discussion, hmm?' "'Later, perhaps, we will discuss. "'For now,' Carl said, in a new forceful note, "'you are present to hear the way things are. "'Yes, the way things are. "'Then, perhaps, you will have a choice to make. "'Of course, hmm, perhaps, you will not. "'I would ask you to rise, but as you will now surely be aware, "'yes, you are indeed immobilized, hmm. "'We will thus sadly omit the formalities.' He stood up straight, straight as a training sergeant, and the kink in his gimpy leg was as straight and true as an arrowed bullseye. That's what I'd missed, and what I thought I'd seen when I'd followed him before. The limp was gone. These manifestations, yes, everyone, have in common the association with a particular individual. Fellow colleagues, I now give you the new, true master of Rusingal Vaya, Right below my vantage point, a door opened. A form stepped through it into the room. His head was below mine, and he wore a dark cloak, but at the mere sight of him, my stomach spun over into the heart of the whirlpool, and my balance reeled. The dark mist clung to him, too, but more than that, it wheeled about him in gleeful, billowing gales. That was his aura, I recognized suddenly, and I didn't know how I knew it, but I'd hopefully be able to worry about that later. The aura was feeding off the magicians in the room, probably off me, too. That wasn't all. From the same depth of perception that let me see these sights and understand them, at least in part, came another dreadful fact. There's that old saying, what you don't know can't hurt you. Well, I'd always known it was wrong. I had a nasty habit of ending up in situations where exactly the opposite applied. But I hadn't until that moment appreciated just how bad it could get. Not knowing something existed, not knowing it could exist, was not going to protect me one bit. I hadn't known what I'd have to face, hadn't even known it was a physical possibility. But now that was so much crying in the wind. That wasn't just some magician down there. The black figure in the room below was death. The figure spoke. I am Oskin Yale, it said. Next up, Chapter 10, Shaw and Mont go boating.